0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically. Enjoy responsibly.
1: What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the Smoke on the Water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Yeah. A
2: this is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kott. I
3: write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to re-examine one of the most important issues in music today, copyright law, with our guest
2: Lawrence Lessig. Plus, Greg and I will review the new album from Alejandro Escovedo, and it's Greg's turn to edit a track. To the desert island jukebox you're listening to sound opinions and time now for some music news
3: That is Hair Braider, the uh, new single from R. Kelly. And R. Kelly will not be in jail to enjoy the proceeds from that uh, particular record. The biggest legal proceeding in the music world since the Michael Jackson child molestation case in 2005 has ended in Cook County Court in Chicago a few days ago. R. Kelly acquitted on 14 charges of child pornography by a jury after about seven hours of deliberation. The five-week trial and uh, mesmerized a good part of uh, Chicago and the music world. R. Kelly, the biggest single name in R&B of the last 15 years as a singer, producer, and songwriter, has had his hand in over 40 million record sales in that time. Could have gone away for a long time, 15 years in prison, had he been convicted. But he was acquitted on all charges. And uh, my partner on this show, Jim DeRogatis, his reporting led directly to the indictment of R. Kelly in 2002, and Jim also testified at the trial. Jim, what was your perspective from being inside this case and at Cook County Court while this was going on?
2: Uh Greg, I got to say it was the hardest single thing I've ever done as a as a professional in journalism. Yep. It was as a heck of a couple of weeks. I think the first time I've only missed a radio show in our long history That's together. That's true. Thank you for covering for me there, buddy. I owe you 10 bucks. <laughs> um, I did not testify. I was compelled to appear in court under the threat of a 6-month contempt of court charge in jail. I could have gone to, you jail, could have gone to jail before R. Kelly. And instead, I relied upon my First and Fifth Amendment protections uh, because journalists can't do their job if they're forced to testify. Why was I there? I mean, because the tape that got him indicted on originally 21 counts of child pornography surfaced in my mailbox. I think, Greg, you know, it's not really right for me to give my feelings on this verdict. I think the thing that's going to be extremely interesting is when Kelly's next album mm-hmm. comes out in, in late July or early August, it's scheduled, is how the music world reacts. Because it was not this one case of uh, of one alleged teenager on, on this videotape and Kelly. It's been a pattern of behavior, of using his position of wealth and fame to pursue Uh, Sexual relationships with underage girls. That's what we've reported in the Chicago Sun-Times since 2000. It's why the videotape most likely came to us, and it it was at the core of this trial, and yet none of the other girls, there were four girls who sued Kelly and settled with him, others who took settlements from him before they ever filed lawsuits, uh, and of course, Aaliyah. He married his teenage protege, Aaliyah, when she was 15. None of that was mentioned in court. Obviously, it's been a topic of his music. He hasn't shied away from singing directly about these unnamed sins that, he, that he's asked forgiveness for. I think that it's going to be interesting for us to explore what that says about our culture and, and Kelly's music when this record comes out.
4: I make her feel right when it's wrong For words, so I told her back it up like burp, burp, yeah. and I made that end jump like jerk, jerk, <laughs> yeah. and that's when she say I'm not looking like, like a, a lollipop. lollipop. Oh, yeah, I like to say, I'm look like a lollipop. Like
2: a lollipop. Greg, that is the single Lollipop by Lil Wayne from his sixth studio album, The Carter Three. We're talking about it up top here on the show because he is making big news. Sold a million records in week one at a time when no one does that anymore. And uh, Lollipop has been sitting at number one on the Billboard album chart for weeks, and it's the best-selling ringtone of all time. (laughs) Who is this guy? Dwayne Michael Carter. He's been building a following for years. This is his sixth official studio album, but it's really hard to define... What is a Lil Wayne album? Because the guy has released literally dozens of mixtapes. He has flooded the internet market and has been very skillful in becoming an artist of the new age, of the internet age, who just, for an ADD audience, he just gives them something like almost every day. There's a new Lil Wayne track. For free. And in the meantime, he's appearing on everyone's album. This guy has guested with everybody. Now many of those artists are returning the favor. We have Robin Thicke on this record. We have Jay-Z on this record. Jay-Z, whose last name is also Carter symbolically passing the torch to Little Wayne. Wheezy is his nickname, in part because of that sing-song, laconic rapping style. He he sounds like New Orleans. This is very much. The embodiment of a New Orleans artist. Before we give too much more background, let's just get into this. If you're saying, why do I care about Lil Wayne? You should, because as I said, he's going to be the top selling artist of 2008, it looks like, and you will hear Lollipop many more times this summer than you probably care to. Here's a track that's uh, a bit different from the Carter 3. It's called A Millie by Lil Wayne on Sound Opinions.
4: I'm a millionaire, I'm a young money millionaire, tougher than Nigerian hair, my criteria compared to your career just isn't fair, I'm a venereal disease, like a menstrual bleed through the pencil and leak on the sheet of the tablet in my mind, cause I don't write, cause I ain't got time for my second minutes, I was going to the all. mighty dollar in the all, mighty power of that ch-ch-ch-chopper, sister, brother, son, daughter, father, motherfucker, copper, got the Maserati dancing on the pop it tell the cop you can't get them you can't them go by them if you can't beat them then you drop them you can't man them then you mop them you can't stand them then you drop them you pop them cause we pop them like over
3: hey Millie from lil Wayne's new record the Carter 3 a million plus in its first week which is extraordinary in this day and age. Nobody's doing it anymore. Um, And I think an example here of an artist who has proven the merits of flooding the market with free stuff, building up your audience, building up anticipation. These four double CD mixtapes that he released for free only built up anticipation for this record. And the marketplace has responded by buying it in droves. What's going on here? Lil Wayne, you would expect, would make a record a little bit different from these mixtapes. These mixtapes are sort of thrown together hodgepodge of recordings that he's done in the studio over the course of the last three years.
2: Well, he's a great freestyler,
3: and the mixtapes
2: give the sense of, I'm just giving you stuff off the cuff.
3: Yes, I I went into the studio this morning, and I uploaded it this afternoon, and here it is, you know? Much of the Carter Three sounds very much like Lil Wayne just sort of doing his thing. He's working with some very high-profile producers. He seems to be mixing and matching styles here. He's got the vocoder auto-tuned vocal that's all over R&B and hip-hop radio on, on that song Money, for example. Lollipop uses a little bit of that as well, so he's trying to fit in with the marketplace there. Then you've got the smooth R&B song with the babyface cameo vocal on it produced by Kanye West. You've got a little bit of rock guitar and playing with fire. You've got some topicality on uh, Tie My Hands in which he addresses... The Hurricane Katrina crisis that ravaged his, his hometown of New Orleans. So he's, he's all over the map here. There's even like a 10-minute digression at the end of the record where he just sort of improvs over a Nina Simone sample. She's covering a, an animal's track. It's a very unfocused record. I love his rapping style You know Not only did he inhale the bong I think he swallowed it You know That's the way he sounds You know It's a bullfroggy kind of voice He's very distinctive He loves to play this I'm an alien I'm a Martian And and that song uh, Phone home He's playing E.T. I am not of this planet
2: I dropped down To teach you how to do hip hop A noble tradition Among really inventive Black artists I mean George Clinton played it Sun Ra played it It's a little harder To accept Lil Wayne In that role Because Greg I I disagree with you I don't think this is That much off the cuff I think this is very very carefully marketed by the record company to hit every demographic possible. Well, true. you got Robin Thicke on here, the up-and-coming uh, R&B star who's the son of Alan Thicke from TV, yeah. right, to, for the soccer moms. Right. And then you've got some gangsta violence that, that's just obviously like, you know, we don't want to leave the 50-cent fan out. And then you've got some really inventive stuff like the two Kanye West tracks I think are incredible. And Lollipop musically is really a pretty amazing track, but... We come down to the subject of the lyrics. You know, as John Perel is in the New York Times, he can't even be bothered with a double entendre. He's got a single entendre. (laughs)
3: I'm I'm disappointed in this record, Jim. I mean, all the hype. I'm a fan of the mixtapes. I don't see this as a whole lot different from those mixtapes. I was hoping for a cohesive statement about this guy as an artist. What he's done is given us a more a more highly produced, more polished, multi-million dollar mixtape. And there are some great high points on this record, but there are also some really serious low points. So on the patented Sound Opinions rating scale, buy it, burn it, trash it. I'm going to have to give this a burn it. Uh, It's a very half-and-half proposition for me. I agree with you. It's a burn it.
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and if you do so regularly, you know Mr. Kot and I have been grappling with the issue of copyright law and how it plays into what's happening in music across the boards. The most illuminating interview we've ever done on that topic was with law professor Lawrence Lessig, and we thought it was high time to bring it back for a second listen.
3: They say they never really miss you till you get it you gone, so on that note I'm leaving after the song, so you ain't gotta feel no way about Jay so long. Let me tell you why I'm this way. Hold on. I was conceived by Gorian Carter and Adnus Reeves, who made love on the Sycamore tree, which makes me a more sicker and see my mama would claim at ten pounds when I was born, I didn't give but no pain. That extraordinary piece of music that you're listening to is a mashup, a combination of Jay-Z's December 4th with The Beatles, Mother Nature's Son, orchestrated by one DJ Danger Mouse in 2004 An extraordinary album combining Elements of Jay-Z's The Black Album and The Beatles' The White Album and creating what he called The Grey
2: Album. An amazing record, but you couldn't buy it anywhere. The Grey Album is obviously a dramatic example, Greg, of what can be done with this new digital music technology and also a dramatic example of how arguably our current copyright laws are preventing more of that from being done. All sorts of people are using the web to find music and download music and they're, they're all being painted as criminals – We wanted to try to inject some sanity into this debate since nobody from the kid on the corner to the Supreme Court justice really understands what's going on. We have the one person who does. Stanford University law professor Lawrence Lessig is the founder of Creative Commons, an organization that's trying to improve existing copyright laws, and he's the author of three of the best books about the way the Internet is changing. Everything in popular culture.
3: Professor Lessig, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start out talking about this DJ Danger Mouse record, the Gray Album. It's illegal under current copyright law.
0: That's right. And this kind of digital remixing is the distinctive feature of what these technologies will enable and encourage it is not allowed given the architecture of copyright law as it is right now. Now, what we've got to decide is whether we want this kind of creativity stifled by the law or whether we want to rewrite the law to protect the kind of creativity that it needs to be protected in this era and allow this kind of creativity on top of it. Now, I'm a believer in copyright. I think it's absolutely essential even in the digital age. So I'm not somebody who thinks we should abolish copyright. But I do think that copyright law as we have it right now, was written for last century's technologies. And what we've got to do is to adjust it, make it make sense in the 21st century so that it encourages the kind of creativity the 21st century encourages.
2: Let's take a big step back, Professor. It was not always so copyright in music. In fact, it's like about 100 years old, right? I mean, folk songs were passed down, and uh, the notion that this is my intellectual property and I own it, that's like brand new in the scope of time, right?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right, and this is one of the things that's I think most important. You know, we have this image that copyright's been around forever, and in a sense, you know, it's been around since the birth of the republic, so that's forever for us. But the nature of copyright and the scope of copyright has radically changed over the last two hundred years, and and music is a perfect example now. I think it was a mistake that music wasn't effectively protected uh, for many years. So it's a good thing that you give copyright to musicians. But you've got to watch the detail in the way that music gets protected. So at the turn of the century, composers of music had a copyright in their composition. But once the composer uh, authorized somebody to record the song, anybody else in the world had the right to record the same song So long as they paid a relatively low statutory fee. This is how cover albums are are Mm -hmm. made. And that... Right. Encouraged lots of other artists to become musicians because they could record popular songs and then add one or two of their songs onto the album so that people began to learn their distinctive kind of creativity. And that was fundamental to the growth of music industry for most of the 20th century. In fact, in 1967, when a bunch of people came before Congress to try to get them to abolish this mechanical right, right? Um, The RAAA and other music publishing companies defended the right as essential to the growth of the record industry, and they argued that it was essential that there was, quote, non-discriminatory access to the underlying creative work so that you would encourage the kind of creativity and diversity on top of it. The 21st century equivalent is sampling, right? So Mm -hmm. you want to take a couple seconds from one song and you want to remix it with another song. Well, in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the court covering, the federal court covering, uh, for example, Ohio and Michigan, the court has held that it's piracy quote unquote, to sample even one second of another recording without the permission of the original copyright owner. So you have no equivalent freedom at all, and you can't license it as a compulsory right to license it, to engage in the kind of creativity that's natural to this technology, even though the equivalent in the last century was both explicitly authorized in the case of covers Or essentially permitted through a doctrine called fair use, if you think about the evolution in the context of jazz, of the ability to remake other people's work, or even folk music, the ability to remake other people's work. So the point is, we don't even have the same type of freedom today that we had in the 20th century. And again, that's, in my view, because we've been captured by a kind of extremism in the intellectual property regulation space that is producing the stifling of new innovation relative to existing interests of existing creators.
3: a fascinating point. Think about it. uh, The blues musicians who, with a guitar, were basically consistently reinterpreting songs that had been passed down for centuries. And I'm wondering if it's just a matter of the people in power looking upon this new wave of technology and, and saying well th- that's not a musical instrument you're doing something that's somehow lesser and therefore it doesn't deserve protection under I'm these thinking of the copyright
2: the, the, laws the ruling in the famous Markie uh, case New York rapper uh, Bismarcky samples three seconds of backwards piano dissonant intro not even the hook to uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan's alone again naturally and the judge who ruled in that case he was so clueless about music and the way music is made and what music is he had to stop at one point and ask the lawyers to define for him R&B and then he puts out this ruling <laughs> that says and I quote Exodus thou shalt not steal and you know, know. it's mm-hmm. insane
0: yeah, I mean, I think it's exactly it's exactly the case, that they look at this form of music and they don't really see it as a kind of music, right? And the thing to recognize is that every generation looks at the next generation's form of music and says, that's not real music, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we're all stuck in the conservative view of our present culture. But free culture has been about the right for the next generation to make it by either demonstrating how they are really artistically creative and therefore worthy of attention, or at least having the chance to fail at making that showing. We've never used the law to block the next generation's form of creativity, but that's what we're doing in this case in particular. You know, I, um, I interviewed Jeff Tweedy about this issue in particular, and, and I described this decision in the, second, in the Sixth Circuit that blocked the ability of people to engage in this kind of sampling, and he had an instantaneous response where he said, racism. And now that's a that's a very strong charge to make, but I think it's not racism in the sort of overt sense where you're saying, I'm going to try to hold back a particular group, but it is a, a product of the kind of segregated cultural life that we live in, right? So that one form of music develops that white people have, in some sense, no direct connection with most of the time, and they don't even recognize it as art or recognize it as creativity. But African-Americans have, you know, experience to this type of culture, which is not just happens to be art, but it's also a way of expressing and re-expressing their past that's extremely significant to them, but but most of the rest of the world is just oblivious to it.
3: We're going to be right back with more of our discussion with Lawrence Lessig, plus a review of the new album from Alejandro Escovedo. That's In A Minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, And you've been listening to our 2006 conversation on copyright and free culture with cyber law expert Lawrence Lessig.
3: We're going to get back to our discussion with Professor Lawrence Lessig in a moment. But first, we're going to give you an example of pre-digital age file sharing, the way music has been passed down for centuries around the world a word of mouth troubadours going from town to town singing their song having someone else hear it and interpret it in their own way and make it their own song a classic example over the last century has been the evolution of this song In the Pines and we're going to give you some examples of how it has evolved over the last 100 years
4: To the pines To the pines Where the sun never shines Going to shiver where the cold winds blow Black girl, black girl Where
1: will you go? I'm going where the cold winds blow In the pines, in the pines where the sun never shines I will shiver all oh, night too In the pine. Find where the sun never shines, and shiver
4: In the pines, in the pines,
1: where the sun never shines, and we shiver when the north wind blows.
3: That is Kurt Cobain, Nirvana's late singer from 1994, MTV Unplugged version of a song that has been variously known as Black Girl, Where Did You Sleep Last Night, In the Pines, and To the Pines, To the Pines. It has been passed down for centuries. We heard versions from Baskin Lamar Lunsford, a North Carolina mountain soul singer. We heard Lead Belly's version. A bunch more, and there's footnotes at the uh, Sound Opinion's website that'll steer you through the morass of this song, it has been passed down by word of mouth through the ages and and reinterpreted as something that you see less and less of in this day an age of more rigid
2: copyright laws yeah it isn't that cover songs are illegal but in this case in particular when you hear the dead doing their version and cobain doing their version everyone was recreating that song taking the raw material and reshaping it which is what a lot of people say electronic artists are doing when they're sampling professor lessig is arguing the case that that kind of creativity
3: is no longer allowed that sense of of word-of-mouth reinterpretation the consumer becoming the creator is not allowed in this present digital age copyright
2: law environment. Exactly. We talked a little earlier in the conversation with Professor Lawrence Lessig about Creativity being stifled, artists being stifled. We also wanted to ask him about how the consumer is being affected.
0: Are they consumers or creators? Right in the 20th century, I understand they were consumers, and even the mixtape, which of course is extremely expressive, was still just taking other people's work and just reordering it. But that's you know a fraction of the kind of creativity that will go on in the 21st century. And when it happens, the hard question is whether the law is going to allow it. Because the reality is, as the law is written right now, this form of creativity is not legal. And You know, why we should be rendering illegal creativity is the hard question that I think policymakers have got to think about.
2: Of course, there's all sorts of things, Professor, that are technically illegal but flourish in America.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, and here's the the boring law professor in me, right? I think it's Uh awful that kids engage in behavior all the time in all sorts of contexts that they self-consciously know is illegal and yet they think, well, this is just the way we live. But my response is, let's find a way to make the laws make sense with these technologies. Because the fact is, it's not that our kids are deeply immoral. It's that the law renders their behavior illegal in a way that does not make sense in the 21st century.
3: You know, one of the names we hear a lot about in this discussion is Napster, the first peer-to-peer applications where people would download music or rather illegally Download music according to current copyright law. Professor, you fought on behalf of Napster before the Supreme Court. Tell us a little bit about your argument.
0: I've actually had lots of second thoughts about what's the best strategy for arguing about this issue because the vast majority of people, when they hear about Napster and about Grokster, hear about technologies that enable people to copy other people's content without their permission, copyrighted content. And for most people, they think that's wrong. And uh, I understand why they think it's wrong. And in fact, I don't think peer-to-peer technology should be used to violate other people's copyright. But when I was that's, involved That's, that's in
2: the- a point, Professor, before you go on. We should make crystal clear. You don't think it's fair for me to log onto the computer and I don't want to buy the new Madonna album. I'm just going to download it because I'm cheap. That's wrong. You're yeah, against that.
0: Yeah, it's wrong. I mean, I'm using the strong words as possible. It's wrong. It's illegal. It's immoral. All of that. I don't think you should do it. Period. Um, but when we argue, when we were arguing about the Napster case and we were arguing about the Grokster case, the reason we supported Napster and Grokster, or I supported Napster and Grokster, was an esoteric legal question, and the legal question was, should the courts or should Congress decide which technologies are allowed and which are prohibited? And the principle that I still believe in that uh, the Sony Betamax case announced in 1984 was that when a new technology comes along that alters the way content gets distributed as long as it's not solely usable for illegal purposes, it's a problem for Congress, not for the courts. Now, I think that's a great thing because the idea that a federal judge would sit there and decide which new innovations are going to be allowed and which ones are not is terrifying to me. I mean, these are <laughs> like Soviet planners with better calculators and better lighting, right? I mean, it's outrageous to imagine right. judges involved in this process. So that's why I was animated to say, no, 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 this is not, it's, this is not a decision for courts. It should be left to Congress. But the problem with that argument is that you know 90% of the world doesn't even understand that's what the issue is about 90% of the world thinks that when you stand up and you defend grokster you're defending people taking content without the permission of the copyright owner and and that's not what i'm defending so in my view it would be much better if we could begin to focus people not so much on the peer to peer file sharing problem but on the extraordinary range of creativity that's going on out there on the internet right now that it's also being shut down By this extraordinarily extreme system of intellectual property regulation that we've got right now.
3: Absolutely. Let's play devil's advocate for a moment here, Professor. The Recording Industry Association of America, which has come up several times in this conversation, dominates the $12 billion a year music industry. It produces the vast majority of music that's consumed through non-underground channels in America. They make very uh, very strident points. Uh, You can go to their website and they will tell you why peer-to-peer file sharing and why this internet revolution is destroying culture as we know it. And their points are it's going to drive the record companies out of business. They view each sale by a pirate, a pirate referring to a peer-to-peer file share, presumably, represents a lost legitimate sale. It's going to drive up the costs of legitimate music, which will affect the consumer directly. And it will drive artists to look for other vocations that actually pay because they're no longer getting paid songwriters, producers, singers, musicians are no longer getting paid royalties from these lost sales. How would you address these very passionate points that the recording industry is making about its dying business in the light of what's happening on the Internet right now?
0: The existence of peer-to-peer file-sharing, at the level at which it exists right now, is what is driving the legislative policy of extremism and intellectual property. It's because they can point to this behavior, that they're able to get Congress to do whatever they want to expand the reach of copyright in a way that stifles new innovations. But, I mean, there's a lot of important points in what the RIAA is saying, and I don't disagree with everything that they're saying, but let's focus on, first of all, who they are. They're not the Artists Association of America, right? They are the Recording Association of America, right? So they're already talking about the middleman. Now, in some sense, the middleman has never been a great uh, supporter of the artists, right? So the publishers and the recording industry, they obviously have interests that are not necessarily the same interests as the artists. My favorite copyright scholar, Lyman Ray Patterson, he loved to say that you know the relationship between the author and the publisher is the same relationship as the cow to the uh, cattle rancher, right? I mean, <laughs> of course, they both have an interest that sounds in some ways the same, but it's also fundamentally different. So the recording industry, you know, is uh, it might be true that they're threatened by these new technologies, but it's not clear that abolishing the, f- the recording industry, at least in the way that we think of it today, is terrible for the artist, right? The uh, Existing industry is extremely concentrated. It's extremely narrow range of artists who actually get to make it in the world or actually can support themselves through the sale of recordings. And a different industry might actually benefit a wider range of artists, and that would be a good thing, in my view. But if they can't provide value to artists, then they have no reason to be here in the business, because the job of a recording industry is not to protect themselves. It should be to help prosper artists in this business.
2: We are uh, talking to Professor Lawrence Lessig on Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. Professor Lessig's written three indispensable books for anybody who cares about the future of, uh, of copyright and the, the issue of uh, the digital domain, free culture, the future of ideas, and code and other laws of cyberspace. But One thing I don't get, though, I remember being a kid of 13. I was the world's biggest Pink Floyd fan, and the night that The Wall was released, WNEW in New York City played it all in its entirety. And I sat up starting at midnight, right? I sat up and I taped it. I taped it on on my you know C ninety right, which was the first thing that the music industry said was going to home taping is going <laughs> to kill recorded music, uh, you know, and and I had that cassette right, and it wasn't illegal for me to do that right. What year did you do it? <laughs> well, the year the wall came out, I guess nineteen eighty or whatever 79, what was that? 79, seventy yeah, yeah. nine eighty yeah seventy nine eighty
0: yeah. You know, this is where the recording industry's right. There's a real difference between the ability to tape something off the radio and the ability to tape something in a digital form and make it available on the internet because. Uh, the first thing is a kind of second-class recording that you can share with everybody who happens to want to spend the 40 minutes it takes to to dub it. Um, but the second thing is something you can make available to your 100,000 best friends on the Internet. That's a difference, right? Now, yeah. again, I don't think that it's appropriate to have the kind of penalties that are in place for that behavior. Uh, You know, the recording industry is often fond of saying, what's the difference between walking into a Tower Records and picking up a CD and walking out with it and downloading the same content on the Internet? Well, there is a big difference. In California, if you go into a Tower Records and you pick up a CD and walk out, you might be chargeable with a misdemeanor that's probably a $1,000 fine. According to the RIAA, if you download the same songs off the internet, you could be liable for 1.5 million dollars in damages. Now, you know the point is between the two, which is the really harmful activity. Taking it from Tower tower Records actually deprives Tower Records of some money, but down the the internet, it's arguable whether it harms anybody. So the point is, I don't think the penalties are appropriate. And what the penalties mean is that every time they sue somebody, absolutely the lawyer will say the best, the, the only thing you can do is to settle.
2: Well, a good place to wrap up, professor, might be whether realistically we are going to see this change in our lifetimes. I mean, you have a good read of the courts, you've argued before the Supreme Court. Where are we going and how is it going to get resolved? Are the courts going to make sense of this?
0: I think the place to look is not the courts. The place to look is in the in the computer hard drives of millions of American kids right now, right? So, the Pew Trust released a study that said 57% of teenagers had produced and shared content on the Internet. I'm not talking about peer-to-peer file sharing of illegal content. I'm talking about creating content which they shared with others. That kind of creativity is inherently unstoppable. And the only question we should uh, answer is whether that kind of creativity will be legal or illegal. Now, I think we could craft intellectual property laws to make that kind of creativity totally legal under the law and also protect artists. But the real place to look is where that energy, that kind of creativity is exploding and ask the question whether our courts and legislatures will catch up to it. And I think eventually they will. But the problem with all wars of prohibition, which is exactly what this war is, is that there's extraordinary costs in the interim. And the costs are not just to the recording industry. The costs are to creators like the samplers who are blocked from being able to release legal content and our kids who are blocked from being on university networks because it turns out they had some kind of file-sharing technology on their computer. There's an extraordinary number of costs here that are not being considered, and it's much more significant, I think, than the costs to a relatively small industry. You know, a $12 billion industry is nothing in the scale of the United States economy, and it's nothing compared to the industry of, you know, computer technology and broadband services that could actually be benefited by a more balanced intellectual property regime.
3: So, so let's say the industry comes to its senses, professor, and names you the head of Sony or EMI tomorrow. <laughs> oh, wow. What would you do to save this dinosaur from uh, sinking up to its neck into the tar pits of of the past? What what do you think it should do? I think
0: one thing it should do is encourage participation with their the work of their. Of their artists. So I think that they should be totally open to the idea of encouraging kids to remix the creative work of their artists, at least non-commercially, right? You should be releasing your content in a way that says, you want to take this and do things with it non-commercially, remix it, that's totally fine. Now, that's different from saying you're allowed to -to peer-to-peer file share it. I'm not saying they should They should give people the rights to do that, but they should encourage the kind of creative work that the technologies are allowing. That's one. Number two, they should encourage artists to experiment with different ways of producing and sharing their content. I mean, we at Creative Commons, we had a license that encourages this kind of sampling and remixing and Gilberto Gil, who's one of the most important Brazilian musicians, a fantastic artist, um, wanted to release his content under this license and his record label wouldn't let him because they owned all the rights and they refused to allow this kind of experimentation. And if it were ahead of Sony um, or uh, BMG, I would back away from the insanely Harmful uh, technologies, DRM technologies, that they're bundling into yeah. their content, which only makes you know consumers more furious with their record labels. Not more. And those to those, those are the law. programs
2: that make it impossible to uh, to duplicate the CD to play it in some cases Movie in your, in your CDs. computer.
0: You know, I just don't know how a company like Sony BMG could think that they would <laughs> uh, be able to release this product, which essentially places viruses on top of computers all around the uh, world, and get away with it.
3: Thank you very much, Professor,
2: for being our guest on Sound Opinions.
0: I appreciate you having me. Thanks.
2: If you have a comment on the world of music, give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or email interact at soundopinions.org. We'll be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of Alejandro Escovedo's latest album as well as Greg's Desert Island jukebox pick.
3: back to sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media what you're hearing is a little bit of Alejandro Escovedo from his new solo album Real Animal Alejandro Escovedo has been making music since the late 70s he was in uh, one of the very first punk bands to form in San Francisco in fact they were the band that opened for the Sex Pistols on their final show in San Francisco in 1978 and Later on, Alejandro became friends with one Sid Vicious. In fact, shared a uh, hotel apartment room with him several times when they were both living in the Chelsea Hotel in New York a, a few months later. Alejandro's had a checkered career in rock and roll, under the radar, but uh, with a number of influential bands. After the Nuns, he was in Rank and File, one of the uh, country punk pioneers of the early 80s out of California. Then he formed a band called the True Believers in Austin, Texas, with his brother Javier. Then uh, Escovedo uh, started a solo career in the early '90s in in Austin, and has been releasing solo records fairly steadily for the last 15 years. In recent years, he's raised his profile a bit. On his last record, he worked with one of his heroes, John Cale, was the producer of a record called The Boxing Mirror and brought uh, Alejandro back into the public light. He had been uh, seriously ill with hepatitis C, and, and the boxing mirror chronicled his return to health and and to the rock and roll world. And now he's working with Tony Visconti, another one of his heroes. Visconti, the man who produced a number of great albums in the 70s, including works by David Bowie and T-Rex. Now he's the producer for Real Animal, this new Alejandro Escovedo record. If you scour around YouTube, you can find Alejandro on stage with Bruce Springsteen performing the first song from this record, Always a Friend. Alejandro's profile's uh, gone up yet again. He is now being managed by the same manager as Bruce Springsteen, John Landau. He's on tour with the Dave Matthews Band as an opening act. He's playing a big outdoor festival on the July 4th weekend in Chicago. So, in many ways, Alejandro Escovedo, in his late 50s, is enjoying his highest public profile ever. Let's listen to a little bit of Real Animal before we get into a review. I mentioned his stay at the Chelsea Hotel with the Sex Pistols in this amazing time of the punk rock era in New York City in the late 70s. And here's a track about that experience. Chelsea Hotel from Alejandro Escovedo on Sound Opinions.
1: I lived in the Chelsea world on 7th and 23rd. We came to live inside the myth of everything we heard. The poets on their bar stools—they just love it when it rains. They comb their hair in the mirror and- with the noise, it was nothing special, just another bar, the Max's Kansas City life makes everyone a star, and it makes no sense, it makes no sense.
2: That is a song called Chelsea Hotel from Alejandro Escovedo's new album, Real Animal, here on Sound Opinions. Greg, you certainly dropped enough names in that introduction, and if we can judge any artist by the friends that he or she can boast of, certainly Alejandro's right at the top of the list of the most important artists in America today. I think, with the exception of the boxing mirror, often, though, he hasn't really delivered the goods that, that much on record. When you haven't seen him live, you wonder what's everybody so excited about? And this is one of those records. I mean, all due respect, the guy is a great talent. He's especially vibrant on stage, but there is no heavy lifting going on on Real Animal. He wanted to make a punk rock record, and he did. He said, in my solo career, I've never really done that, except he did have that side group Buick McCain for one album. Okay, but whatever. He wanted to rock. He's 57. It's his second or third midlife crisis. He survived Hepsi, He survived divorces and career failings. Okay, rock out. But, you know, we can count the pilfered Iggy Bowie and Lou Reed riffs, and they they have to be in the double digits. It's ridiculous. It's fine. It's fun. It's good. I don't think I'll ever play it again, aside from the four or five times I listened to it for this show. If I got to not equivocate on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, I'm generously giving it a burn it.
3: Well, I think you're
2: missing the other
3: half of this record. There are obviously homages, or as you say, Pilferings going on here from uh, <laughs> the canon of Iggy Stooge and uh, David Bowie and, and and Lou Reed, a lot of his heroes. But I what I really hear here is an homage to another one of his heroes, Ian Hunter and Mott the Hoople, and the range of emotions that Hunter could bring to a Mott the Hoople record. There was that punk and garage rocker, yes, but there was also that tender side and that softer side that's on this record as well. And I think more in terms of the emotional Temperature of this record It's more in keeping with a, with a classic Mott the Hoople record Or one of those Early Ian Hunter Solo records You know you can hear That sort of Sense of emotion In, in, a, in a track like Slow Down Or Hollywood Hills no,
2: Sensitive boys Turn your amps sensitive up loud. boys, I yeah. know I know You
3: know and I think That there's a quality there That very much in keeping With that with that. Yeah Hunter but you're going to Tell me catalog. there's
2: anything On here that you haven't Heard a hundred thousand Times before
3: No because it's his story Now he's telling his story And, and what's, what, what sets it apart It's his story It's very specific The deep Details are very specific to his life. Those details about the Chelsea Hotel, those details about leaving California or Southern California for Northern California—nobody's ever written about the
2: Chelsea Hotel before, right? In rock
3: history. But his perspective—he was there the day that Nancy Spungen died. I mean, uh, very few people can actually say that. And he's the specificity of the details in this record are are what set it apart. This is a a man's personal story told through the music that mattered most to him throughout his life, and I think it's a great. Way of looking back at his life, to my mind, it's a buy record all the way. I'm
2: sticking with my burned it. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I won't apologize. <laughs> I tell
1: you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched.
2: Remember, we were shipwrecked together. Every week on Sound Opinions, we choose a song from the Desert Island Jukebox. Greg Cott, it is your turn. What do you got? You know, Jim,
3: Lawrence Lessig has completely inspired me tonight. And I realized how ticked off I am about the fact that records like the one I'm going to be playing can't be made anymore because our copyright laws prevent it from happening. Hip hop artists, for about a decade, we're basically creating new, wonderful music out of samples, bits and pieces of electronic data from records that had been recorded years before. The entire history of recorded music was at their fingertips, and they were able to recreate that history and make new music out of it. The Beastie Boys did an incredible job of it on Paul's Boutique, their 1989 album, and that really was the last of an era, because after that, uh, the lawsuits started piling up, And it became prohibitive for hip-hop artists to sample other people's records and create new music out of it because they had to pay through the nose for it. Some of these samples costing hundreds of thousands of dollars and really ended an era. And I think the height of that era was Paul's Boutique. What was extraordinary about this album was the Beastie Boys, these three guys who had been called... Uh, Their their debut record, Licensed to Ill, was sort of regarded as a fluke by critics. I remember the headline in the Village Voice, something like, Three Idiots Make a Masterpiece. (laughs) Like, (laughs) this will never happen again. These guys won't have a career. It was basically songs about drinking, partying, and partying and drinking over kind of stock beats and heavy metal sounds. But these guys really weren't artists. Well, Paul's Boutique proved that they were artists. They collaborated with this Los Angeles production team known as the Dust Brothers. Three guys named Matt Dyke, John King, and Mike Simpson. And these guys were ahead of the curve in terms of taking samples and blending them together. They were sort of the West Coast version of the Bomb Squad, the uh, groundbreaking hip-hop production crew that was working with Public Enemy on the East Coast. Well, the Beastie Boys answered Public Enemy's extraordinary facility with sampling with Paul's Boutique, and in particular the song Eggman. You've got snippets of Dance to the Music by Sly and the Family Stone. You've got not one but two samples from Public Enemy. You're going to get yours and uh, bring the noise. You've got the bass line from Superfly by Curtis Mayfield. You've got a bit of Bernard Herrmann's score from the movie Cape Fear, the original Cape Fear. You've got a scream from Drew Barrymore in E.T. <laughs> you know, the big beat in that track is a kind of an obscure reference. It's a song called Sport by the uh, artist named Lightning Rod from his album Hustler's Convention. You've got bits of Jaws and Psycho, and you've got some of Tower of Power's Drop It in the Slot. So you've got basically this gamut of movie soundtracks, movie dialogue, great soul hip-hop and funk all blended together basically no real instruments were used no traditional instruments guitar bass drums just a great piece of music created out of other pieces of already recorded music and three voices on top of it you can't do that today the beastie boys end of an era and i'm really kind of sad that it's gone eggman my desert island jukebox pick on sound opinions
2: Eggman from the Beastie Boys, my Desert Island jukebox pick for this week. Good choice, Mr. Codd. That is a psychedelic hip-hop classic. I think in a lot of ways, hip-hop still hasn't reached that level of creativity. That route of creativity has been cut off, and that's tragic,
3: I think. Absolutely. And Jim, next week we've got more great music to talk about. We're almost halfway through 2008, and you know what that means. We're going to run down our list of the best records so
2: far of the year one of our favorite shows second only to the best records of the year but we have to wait till the end of the year for that as always sound opinions has been produced by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn and we have our new intern Dylan Peterson and of course our fearless leader our executive producer a man whose copyright has not lapsed Tory Southside Malatia On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so give us a call on our hotline. 1-888-859-1800. Buzz, Buzz, line is busy every time that I phone. Buzz
0: is the longest talker I ever known. Buzz, Buzz,
4: I've been trying hard to reach him all day. Buzz, Buzz. New messages. Yeah, hi, this is Mike in Displays. I listened to your uh, songs about Summer Show last week, and one thing that occurred to me was, in my opinion, the best song about uh, summer is uh, Summer in the City by Love and Spoonful. It wasn't even mentioned. I think you guys left it out on purpose just to see uh, how many people would respond and complain the way
0: I have.
1: Hi,
3: this is Greg from Chicago. I'm calling about your summer show. I just have to say, James, Mr. Deer Sand in My Joints, Bananarama, Mr. Heat Miser When I think about summer songs, I think about driving around in a car with the windows rolled down and a bunch of friends. And You pop your mix CD in, you're going to be hitchhiking within 30 seconds. For me, the best summer band is The Cars, and their best summer song is Best Friends Girl. You get the Here She Comes Again choruses, you get the hand claps. Forget it. Summer's here. Then again, I like summer. also like your show. Good job, guys. Keep it up.
0: Hi, this is Crystal from Minneapolis. I just finished listening to your summer songs show. Uh, this one's for Jim DiRogatis who seems to hate summer. A really great summer song is called Real Summer. It's by Future Bible Heroes, which is a Stephen Merritt project. It's got these great lyrics all about the latitude and kind of ennui and weariness that you can feel in the summer. And it's just this kind of melancholy song that at the same time, really kind of upbeat sound to it so you can cruise around the lakes listening to it in your car. Just thought I would add that for your consideration for your picks of summer songs.
3: Hey there, gentlemen. This is uh, Jim from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I uh, just wanted to leave a comment on the Songs of Summers broadcast. You had briefly mentioned uh, Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen, and I would offer that almost any of the Minutemen or Firehose albums uh, would qualify as summer music. There it was nothing more playful during my mini-ramp skateboarding days as Double Nickels on the Dime for that eclectic, funky never-quite-mastered-again sound of Mike Watt, D. E. Boone, and Hurley uh, going to town. The uh, rhythms were tight, the
2: music was crazy, and the lyrics were even crazier. I don't want to hurry
1: See, my position was here!
3: always make me think of summer, and uh, thought I'd throw that out. Thanks for your show, guys. Hey, uh, Jim and Greg, it's Greg Hall. Great show tonight. Um, just listened to it on my way out to seeing a rock band in Joliet, and I was very happy I got to listen to Sound Opinions on the way out. The Cursive Interview is fantastic. Great band. Omaha's a fun town. Hope you had fun there. Cheers.
1: Awake alone in a woman's room, I hardly know. Awake alone. Pretend that I am finally home. The room is littered with the books. I'm not sure what they say. I don't bother me.
0: No more messages.
3: To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline 1 888. 8591800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.